we are in the middle of this amazing chapter 40, which is so <laughs> intricate and so capitalistic and really reaching high. We're like shooting for the stars. And sometimes you're like, hey, why are we doing this? Like, just give us the bottom line. Give a couple of instructions, you know, ABC, do this and that. Love is important. Fear is important. You got to do the mitzvahs. Why all this intricate details? Well, that is the way of the Alter Rebbe. That is his path and that is his method. You see, when the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, came along, the Jewish people were in a comatose state. The Jewish people had just undergone the terrible persecution of the pogroms of Chmelniki Yemach Shemai, and they were hardly breathing. The Jewish people were so worn down with persecution and a depleted spirit and they were in a state of having fainted. And Hashem sends Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Yisrael is the name of the Jewish people. And what do you do when somebody faints? You whisper their name into their ear. And Hashem whispered into the Jewish people's ear by sending us the Baal Shem Tov to wake us up and revive us and remind us that Hashem loves us. And a new inspiration was pumped into the veins of the Jewish people. And it was new in the sense that they haven't been exposed to it recently. But we have to remember that the deep teachings of Kabbalah were there from the very start, starting from Moshe Rabbeinu. The difference between then and now is in the beginning, it was just passed down from leader to leader. It helped them mold their way, their path, and their message. But the actual details were kept hidden for the elite few. And as history progresses to the end of time, this has become available to all of us. And this is something that we can know the details of. And not only could we know the details of, we need to know the details. This is something that Altarabba quotes in Tanya, it was just in the Daily Tanya, that the Arizal says, it's a mitzvah, it is absolutely a mitzvah to reveal this wisdom. And in this unfolding of the Hasidic movement, bringing the deeper ideas of the Torah to all of the Jewish people. It started out first with the Baal Shem Tov, who was the ultimate inspirer. Inspire is the first step. Inspiration. Wow, I'm excited. I could serve Hashem. I thought somebody like me, who's simple, who's unlearned, who's not yet emotionally developed, it's not for me. I can't serve Hashem. No, the Baal Shem Tov taught Every single Jewish person has a relationship with Hashem. The Baal Shem Tov taught that every single Jewish person is more precious to Hashem than an only child born to their parents in their old age. So think about a couple who gave up hope of ever having a child. And then in their old age, they are suddenly blessed with a child. How much they love this child. And Hashem loves each and every Jewish person more than this elderly couple loves their only child. And it's not like fanciful and fluffy. It's the truth. That's how it is. That revived the Jewish people's spirit. And then along came the Alter Rebbe. That was the student of the Baal Shem Tov. Well, this was the student of the Baal Shem Tov student. The Alter Rebbe used to call the Baal Shem Tov his grandfather because he was his spiritual grandfather. He was his teacher's teacher. 
and took that inspiration and helped us integrate it. It's not just something inspiring that adds spring to our step. It's something that we can absorb and assimilate within our everyday consciousness and it becomes who we are behaviorally in a way that it's assimilated within us. It's not just something beyond us that we kind of ascribe to and we watch inspired people and we dance along. It's something that we study. And that's what Chabad means. Chachma Bina Da'as. You're going to absorb it in your mind, which is like eating. You're going to eat it. You're going to identify it. You're going to assimilate it. It's going to become you. So is it easy? No. It's not easy. It takes a lot of work, but it's doable. And the altar of is holding our hand and telling us, you can do this. I'm going to take you through the steps. A lot of details. We're learning deep stuff. But for that reason, because he wants us to own it. There is a story of a chassid of the altar Rebbe who lived in the same town as a chassid of Reb Chaikol of Amdur. Rav Chaikov Amdor was a colleague of the Alter Rebbe, meaning they were both students of the Magad of Mezrich. So the Alter Rebbe student and Rav Chaikov's student are neighbors in the same town. They daven at the same shul. The Alter Rebbe student comes to the Alter Rebbe with a complaint. And he said, you know, it isn't fair. Both of us get to shul in the morning and Rav Chaikov's chassid is burning He's passionate. He gets right into davening and his davening is on fire. And me, I first have to learn and then I meditate until I absorb it. And then I start davening. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. How could that be? Why is this fair? And the altar took this very seriously and he leaned his head on his hands in meditation. And he said to him, Airbrent, is he burning? Is that chassid burning with passion? Chaiko Brent in M. It is Chaiko. It is his teacher who burns in him. But what we want is that you should burn on your own. And now, of course, not burn, but means you should be passionate, on fire, full of life on your own. You should have it assimilated within you that it's your own passion that's burning within you. So the work is harder but it's more integral and it really becomes part of who we are. There's this fascinating article on Chabad.org, a biography of Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. And along his path, he it's called Marked by Fire. I really recommend it. It is gorgeous. I've read it so many times, actually. It's fascinating. It's amazing. It's uplifting. It's called Marked by Fire. It's The, the author is Rabbi Rubin. I forgot his first name. And... Um, the two texts that really made him who he was were the Talmud and the Tanya. And he said, I want to bring these texts to everybody. I want everybody to know what I know. I want everybody to have the experience that I have. And he had this idea of re-articulating the Tanya in modern Hebrew terms and in everyday language so that it's available to everyone. And he brought this idea to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe didn't agree for him to do that. The Rebbe said like this, the Rebbe told him never to do away with the original text. And I'm going to read you actually from this article. The Rebbe said like this, a personal encounter with such challenging texts as these, the Rebbe pointed out, cannot be attained if the original text is erased in the name of making it accessible. 
Indeed, such an approach is counterproductive and patronizing. Ultimately, it reinforces the assumption that the original text can only be encountered by a privileged elite. It also denies the eternal holiness that such texts inscribe. The Rebbe went on to explain a further educational rationale that underpinned his guidance. Torah cannot be discovered without exertion. As the sages say, if someone said, I did not try, but I did succeed, do not believe him. That's from the Talmud Bavli, Megillah 6b. The goal of an educator is not to ease the learning process to the point that no effort is required on the student's part. It is rather to provide the kind of tools that will enable the student to exert effort to the maximum efficiency, thereby achieving the richest result in the accretion of quantitative knowledge and qualitative wisdom. And that is the point. The point is a teacher is not meant to say, you know what, you don't have to work hard. I'm handing you everything on a silver platter. No. Everybody has to work hard when it comes to Torah study. No one's going to take the hard work out for us. But our teachers are going to give us the tools so that we can encounter the Torah. And so the Tanya is not taking out the hard work for us. The Alter Rebbe gives us plenty of hard work. But he's giving us these tools in accessing our deep relationship with Hashem. So having said that, we're going to encounter some really deep Kabbalistic ideas in today's chapter. And we're going to do this. We are on page... We are on page 11. Okay. So right now, we're going to bring together everything we started learning, starting from chapter 35. In chapter 38, the Alter Rebbe pointed out that there is a halacha, that hear her love kedibor dummy, that meditation does not is not valid in lieu of verbal articulation. So if somebody with all the power of their concentration and the feelings of their heart, they reach Shema, but they don't actually say the words. It doesn't amount to anything. And on the other hand, if somebody does a mitzvah, somebody says words of prayer for the most part, even if they did not have the proper intention, after the fact, it still counts as a mitzvah. And this too is underscored what we were learning here in this chapter and in the previous chapter. There's three different ways of studying Torah. There's three different ways of doing a mitzvah. One is the best way, lishma. Doing this out of love and fear for Hashem. Or a lower level than that, stam. You have no particular intention. That's your basic habit. That's your routine. You're not thinking so much about Hashem. You're just studying. You're praying because that's what you do. And then finally, there's the lowest level is Shalai Lishma, truly not for its own sake. This is somebody who's doing it for contrary intentions. Well, there's three different kind of effects. If they did it for the proper intentions, their Torah rises up to the higher worlds, becomes incorporated in the 10 holy Sufi wrote, becomes manifested that this is the will of Hashem. If they did it stam for no particular intention, they weren't having the intentions of love and fear in studying Torah and doing a mitzvah and praying, it's still holy. It rises to the higher worlds, but not to the internal aspect of the higher world. It rises to the external aspects, aspects of the higher worlds, a holy place, the place of the angels. It becomes an angel. And then finally, if somebody has negative intentions in studying Torah or doing a mitzvah, then the Torah and mitzvah does not rise beyond this world at all. It remains trapped in this world in the klipa.
Now, if somebody does teshuva, then their Torah is released and ascends to the higher sefirot. What does that tell us? That tells us that Torah and mitzvahs, even when performed not for the proper intentions, essentially are something holy. That's why there's something to be released when they do teshuva. Once they do teshuva, it's released. It was always holy. Its pristine holiness was untampered. All that happened to it was it was trapped. But essentially, Torah and mitzvahs are the will of Hashem, no matter how they were performed. Of course, if they were performed with proper intentions, but even if they were not performed with proper intentions, it is always the will of Hashem, and it always has a refining effect on the body, on the animal soul, and on the world. What if a person just had love and fear, and they didn't do any mitzvah, and then they did teshuva, but then there's nothing to release? There was nothing substantial there. Nothing has become redeemed. So we see these two things. The actual elicitation of divine will is through Torah and mitzvahs. However, what allows us to see the Torah and mitzvahs, what allows the Torah and mitzvahs to shine, what brings it up to its place in the higher worlds and the tense, if he wrote, is love and fear. So there are two sides of this pole that form the center beam of all these chapters. And now we're going to look at the analogy of love and fear being wings. And this perfectly typifies and explains everything that we've been learning until now. This clearly explains why fear and love are figuratively called wings. They are not the essential aspect of the mitzvah, but they are what bring it up to a higher place, just like wings are not the essential bulk of the bird's body, but they're what allow the bird to fly. And now the altar is bringing proof that love and fear are called wings. As it is written, and with two wings he flies, alluding to the two midot of love and fear. So this is from the prophecy of Yeshaya. And he's describing these angels that have six wings. And it says, with two of them, it flies. And if you look at mystical writings, what are the two wings of the angel? Obviously, angels don't have physical wings. Wings mean how it progresses from level to level. How do the angel progress? How does the angel progress from level to level with its two wings, which are love and fear? Kabbalah teaches us that the two wings of the angel are love and fear. So here is proof that love and fear are wings. As Rabbi Chaim Vital of Blessed Memory stated in Shar HaYichudim, chapter 11, that wings are for a bird, what arms are for a man. Okay? So here we are looking at proof that Love and fear are called wings. The first proof was that the angels fly with two wings. What are those wings? They are love and fear. And here is exactly what Rabbi Vichayim Vital writes in Shari Yechudim. What are wings? Okay, a bird's wings are a person's arms. Oh, now we know what wings are. What are arms? We're not talking about physical arms. We have to look what does the Zohar say what arms are? 
And the Zohar says, Chesed, Draya Yamina. Givura, Draya Smala. Chesed is the right arm. Givura is the left arm. Here is another proof that love and fear are called wings. And here's another proof. Uvatikunim perishu. It is also explained to Kuni Zohar that those who engage in Torah and mitzvot out of fear and love are called children. Otherwise, if their Torah and mitzvot lack the fear and love of God, they are called fledglings who cannot fly. Okay, so the Torah... In teaching us the mitzvah of sending away a mother bird before taking its young, tells you if you chance upon a bird's nest on the way and you see that the mother is, is nesting on the fledglings or on the eggs, don't take the mother bird over the children. So here the Torah is employing three terms. It's saying, Ephraim, fledglings, Beitzim, eggs, and then bunim, children. So very simply speaking, children, it is an all-inclusive term to include both the eggs and the fledglings. But the Zohar differentiates between children and fledglings. And it compares children to those who do Torah and mitzvot with love and fear. That they have fully developed wings which could fly. And those who study Torah and do mitzvot without love and fear are called fledglings, whose wings are undeveloped and cannot fly. So here is further proof that love and fear are called wings. How, are, how do we know it's called love? And, how do we know that love and fear is called wings? Because Tikkunei Zohar says that those who engage in Torah mitzvot out of love and fear are called children, meaning birds with fully developed, developed wings. And if not, they're fledglings. They cannot fly. No love and fear cannot fly, meaning no wings. Okay. So up until now, we established that love and fear are called wings. Now we are going to look at this super Kabbalistic note, getting into detail of the love and fear being wings. So take a deep breath and we're going to do this. In this note, the Alter Rebbe elaborates on the correspondence of wings to fear and love. He quotes Tikkun Zohar, where the subject is treated extensively. Uvesikun memhe, da'ifahu matat. In Tikkun 45, it is written that the figure of a bird represents the archangel Matatron. Reisha delay yud. Vegufa vav usrein gadfin hey hey chulai. His head is the letter yud of the divine name yud and hey and vav and hey. The yud representing chachma. His body is the vav, the six midot, and his wings are the two letters hey and hey representing bina and malchut, respectively. Okay. So here we're looking at the Tikkune Zohar to explain that love and fear are called wings. What does the Tikkune Zohar say? It says, what is the bird? So in describing the account of creation on the fifth day, it says, and let the fowl fly. 
and Kabbalah explains that this refers to the archangel Metatron. It's called a bird. The Talmud says about Metatron, Shemai Kishem Rabbi. His name is like the name of his master, Hashem. How is Metatron formed? And people don't just say his name, so that's why he's called Matat here in short. His head is the Yud of Hashem's name. His body is the Vav of Hashem's name. And his two wings are the He and the He. Now, obviously, we're not talking about physical form over here. We're talking about something extremely spiritual and beyond anything we can imagine with our physical brain. So let's work through this now. How are we going to understand what the two wings of the angel Matat are? We have to be able to classify him. What is he like? If we know what he's like, then maybe we know what his wings are like. Okay, so this is what the altar now explains. Vahainu Oilam Hayatsira Shenikra Matat. This corresponds to the world of Yatsira, which is called Matatron. Whoa. What does that mean? Okay. We learned that the world of Yetzirah is the world of, which is primarily a world of emotions. Remember, we learned in chapter 39 that someone who serves Hashem with instinctive emotions is like an angel who also serves Hashem with instinctive emotions. And so their service rises up to that world because that is the world of emotions. Elam HaYetzirah. If you look at the writing of the Shalah HaKadesh, it says, V'shem HaKailel Sha'ilam HaYetzira Hu Matatrain. The general name for the world of Yetzira is Matatra. Now, Yetzira is the world of the angels. Many, many angels, myriads, more than we can imagine amount of angels are in the world of Yetzira. But the angel who most closely resembles the theme the character, the spirit, the vibe of the world of Yetzira is Metatron. And that's why the name is used interchangeably. We're calling the world of Yetzira is sometimes called Metatron. Now, I was trying to think of like, how do we say this? And I don't know if this is a good, a good analogy, but just for clarification purposes, you know, you, you tell your kids, we're going to Bubby's or we're going to Bubby today. And you mean you're going to grandma's house. Why are you calling her house Bubby? Because her house is pervaded with her presence and it expresses her. It very closely resembles her in a certain way. And so here we're calling the whole world of Yetzira, we're calling it Matat. Because the level, the quality, the character of the angel Matat very closely resembles the world of Yetzira. What is the world of Yetzira? The world of Yetzira is a world of emotions. Now, knowing that the world of Yetzira is called Matatron, and knowing that the figure of Matatron is Hashem's name as follows, his head is a Yud, his body is a Vav, and his two wings are two Hays, we can understand more about his figure. And this is what we're exploring right now. Vav hain gufe halachais sheba mishnah. Vav, the body of Matatron, represents the body of the laws in the Mishnah. Since Mishnah is at the level of Yetzirah, as will soon be explained. For the body of the laws, meaning the actual rulings determining what is permitted or forbidden, who is guilty, 
or innocent and the like are related to the midot, which are represented by the letter Vav. Okay, so we're looking at this angel whose body is the letter Vav. What does it mean, body? It means the bulk of who he is, his main component. The body is the main component. What do we know about this angel? We know that the world of Yetzirah is called Matat. What is the body of the world of Yetzirah? It's emotions. What's its main component? It's emotions. So if the main component of the world of Yetzirah is emotions, if its body, so to say, is emotions, then we have to say that the main component of the angel Matat is emotions. And what is its body? Its body, like the the Tikkun Zohar says, is a Vav. What is Vav? Vav is the body of laws of the Mishnah. What does that mean? Okay, so what is the Mishnah? The Mishnah is primarily the final verdict. This is kosher. This is not kosher. This guy is innocent. This guy is guilty. It's not so much the back and forth, the logic, the reasoning. It's the bottom line. The bottom line, the actual law, is connected to emotions. And that baffles people. People are like, what do you mean? The bottom line has to be something logical. It has to be rational. If you look at the introduction to the Tanya, the Altarab explains that different souls are rooted in different emotions and it gives them tendencies to either be strict or lenient. For example, base Hillel stems from the attribute of chesed and therefore their tendency was to be lenient. Their tendency was to permit. Their tendency was to exempt. Beis Shammai, on the other hand, their souls were rooted in Givura, so their tendency was to be strict. Their tendency was to obligate because they were rooted in Givura. And you can say, one second, coming to a decision is a very rational thing. You know what? Very interestingly, science proves that coming to the bottom line takes emotion. There is a book called Descartes' Error, and I'm sure I pronounced his name wrong. You know, he said, I think, therefore I am. And the scientist in the book, and I forget his name right now, um, proves that people make a decision not by rational calculations. At the end of the day, what pulls you to a particular choice is emotions. And he studied patients who unfortunately had some type of damage, and therefore they were very, very rational and extremely unemotional and apathetic. So everything to them was just like a mathematical equation. And you would think they would have a very easy time coming to a decision, but actually they could not come to a decision. And even when they were given a test, interestingly enough, if you ask them how other people should act in that kind of situation, they can tell you what would be the logical choice. But when it came to them making an everyday decision, they couldn't do it. And one of his patients that he said he was an extreme case and he used to be a genius professor and he he did a lot of stuff, very productive person. He sustained this neurological damage, unfortunately, and he lost his job. He couldn't stay married because he could never figure out what to do. Simple decisions as what to eat or how to tie his shoes. He couldn't do it because he was completely rational and apathetic. So making a decision requires, as Rabbi Steinzalz puts it, taking a stance for or against, and that's an emotional thing. So we're looking now at the bulk of the world of Yetzirah, which represents 
the body of the angel Metatron, which is a Vav, which corresponds to the Mishnah, which are the actual practical halachot. And that is related to emotion. Since the body of the angel Matat is the laws, now we can understand what is the head of this angel. His head represents intelligence. The level of Chabad, which are in terms of the Mishnah, the inner depth of the laws, their esoteric meaning, and their reasons. So the Mishnah is the bottom line. This is how you're supposed to act and apply your behavior. How did you get there? There were reasons for that. The head of the body are the reasons for the body. What made you come to this decision? For example, the Mishnah says that a sukkah that is higher than 20 amos, 20 cubits, is invalid. You look at the Talmud, it will explain to you why it is invalid. Because the Torah says the reason why the Jewish people are supposed to sit in Sukkot is so that the Jewish people should know for generations that Hashem had the Jewish people sit in Sukkot when he took them out of Mitzrayim. So it's something that you should know. Which means that looking at a sukkah, you need to know that it's a sukkah. If a sukkah is higher than 20 amis, your eye does not involuntarily catch the full scope of the sukkah. It will not see this chach, and you will not know that the person is sitting in a sukkah. You will not know that Hashem had the Jewish people sit in a sukkah when he took them out of Mitzrayim. So that is the reason for the law. So yes, there is the verdict. That is the body. But how did you get to the verdict? Oh, that's the head. That's the reason. That's the head of the bird. And this is the yud. So the yud is the head. And it is what led to the body. It is the reasons for coming to the final verdict. Now, train Godfin, Dechilu Urechimu, the two wings denoting flight, namely fear and love, represent, respectively, Hain Heila'a Shehi Rechimu, the higher hey, which is an allusion prevalent in the literature, literature of Kabbalah to love. And the lower hey, alluding to the lower level fear, namely the yoke of the heavenly kingdom and the dread of Hashem, similar to the dread of the king. Okay, so we're looking at the bird. This bird, the archangel Metatron, the world of Yetzirah is sometimes called Metatron. We know about the world of Yetzirah. What do we know about the world of Yetzirah? Its bulk, its character, its theme is the emotions. Okay, now let's look at the Tikkun 45 from Tikkuni Zohar. It describes the figure of the bird Metatron. The bird is an angel and its head is a Yud of Hashem's name. Its body is the Vav of Hashem's name and its two wings are the two Hays. Looking at the world of Yetzirah, we can understand the figure of this angel. The world of Yetzirah is a world of emotions. Translated into the parts of the Torah, the Mishnah, which is the final verdict of the law, corresponds to the body of the bird and the world of Yetzirah. All of this is connected to emotions.
how are they connected to emotions? To come to a final decision requires taking a stance and that's emotional. So the main bulk of the bird is emotional. Now that we know what its bulk is, now we know what its head is. Now we know what its head is. Its head is what led to those decisions, the back and forth. And what are its two wings? What elevates it from level to level? They are the hay and the hay, which are love and fear. And this is what the author of said, that the hay ila'a, the higher fear, is an allusion to love. The higher fear is typically bina. It says in the Zohar, in Tikkune Zohar, bina liba. Bina is the heart, because when a person expands the idea and thinks about Hashem, they come to inspire love within their heart. It's what triggers triggers love within their heart. So the higher hay is love, and the lower hay, which is malchus, is lower level fear. So these are the two wings of the bird. One wing is the higher hay of Hashem's name. When we say higher hay, it's because there's two hays in Hashem's name. First, there's the yud, and then there's one hay. We call the first hay the higher hay. Then there's the vav, and then there's another hay, and we're calling that the lower hay. So the first hay is bina, the first hay is love, and the second hay is machos, the second hay is lower level fear. What is lower level fear? Lower level fear is accepting Hashem's yoke, not wanting to rebel against him. A lot of times people confuse lower level fear and instead of realizing that it's just about not wanting to be to rebel against Hashem, realizing his presence everywhere and not wanting to do anything that would disappoint him or constitute any form of rebellion, some people think that lower level fear is yiras ha'onesh, fear of punishment. That is not fear of Hashem. Yiras ha'onesh, fear of punishment if it works for you, go ahead, use it. Whatever keeps you for doing the right thing. But remember, it's not fear of Hashem. It's fear of being uncomfortable. Fear of Hashem, there are two levels. The lower level of fear of Hashem is not wanting to rebel against him, accepting his sovereignty, realizing his all-pervading presence. There's a kind of crazy story of this guy with so to speak, Yerushalayim. So there's the story of the Hasidic master of David of Lvov. He was traveling with his student, the Yid HaKadosh of Peshischa. He was called the Holy Jew. He was accompanying his master. His master stops and goes into a house for a little. And the little is dragging on to longer and longer. So he comes to check on his master and see, is everything okay? And his master explains to him, he said, I came into the house. And the, the son was berating his father for being so lazy. And as he's giving his father a terrible mouthful, one of the things he tells him is, Father, if he didn't fear Hashem, he would kill him. And Reb David of Lvov turns to his student and says, I simply couldn't leave the presence of a man with such strong Yerushalayim. Fear of heaven. Look at him. He would have done a terrible thing if he didn't fear Hashem. But he fears Hashem, and so he doesn't do this terrible act. I couldn't leave the presence of a man with such Yerushalayim. 
Look, he feared Hashem. He didn't want to rebel against him. There's a story of the Chafetz Chaim who was traveling with a wagon driver. And as they were on their way, the wagon driver noticed an unattended field full of apples. They looked so delicious. He thought he's going to take some for himself. So he said to his passenger, the Chafetz Chaim, hey, you stay over here. You watch guard. I'm going to go get some apples. Anybody's coming, just quickly call me. So he barely reaches out for an apple and the Chafetz Chaim said, somebody's watching, somebody's watching. So he stops right away. He looks around. He doesn't see anybody. Reaches for the apple again. He says, somebody's watching. Somebody's watching. Turns around. He says, stop pulling my leg. I mean it for real. If you see somebody, tell me. Otherwise, stop it. I just want to get a couple of apples. And he goes, somebody's watching. He goes, who is watching? He said, Hashem is watching. And that's just a basic awareness that Hashem is everywhere. We accept his sovereignty. He is the king. And we don't want to rebel against him. We are, understand that he is the king. And this is the basic level of fear. Just like in a regular human king. You don't want to do something to rebel against the king when the king is watching. This is Hashem, the king of all kings. The lower level fear is not wanting to rebel against Hashem. What kind of fear is this? Shehi yirachitzainis v'nigles. Such fear is external and revealed and is therefore alluded to by the lower level, meaning the letter of the divine name. So this is an external fear. What does it mean it's an external fear? It's external for two reasons. First of all, it's external as far as the object of fear. The person is not fearing Hashem's very essence. They're instead fearing Hashem's majesty. They're fearing Hashem's kingship, as it were. It's more as as Hashem relates to the world. That's what causes this person to have awe of him. He realizes how Hashem is present in creation. He realizes that Hashem is the only authority. He realizes even that Hashem is the only reality. But this level of fear is less about, as Rabbi Stanzel puts it, the actor, and instead about the actor's actions. How does it translate into the person? Also external. It's primarily behavioral. He makes sure that his thoughts, speech, and action behaviorally are in accordance with Hashem's will. It's not so much a deep inner awareness. Instead, it's practically speaking, I behave according to the dictates of the king. This is from the lower level, hey, this is an external love. It's external because it's external as far as the level of divine that the person is aware of. It's external as far as how it affects the person. It's something that's visible upon them externally. In contrast, Masha Enkain, Yira Ila'a, Yira Baishes, He Mehanistaris Lashemalekenu. Higher level fear, however, meaning awe consisting of shame before Hashem's greatness, is one of those hidden matters belonging to Hashem, our God or it says, belonging to God, our Lord. So there's a higher level fear. Here we're talking about lower level fear, but the way it actually works is there's fear and love and love and fear from the bottom up. So just to serve Hashem, you need this basic level of fear. We're going to talk about this next chapter, and that is accepting his kingship. Higher than that, there's a, a love. This is called Ahavaz Ailam. It's a love as it's, we realize how Hashem is manifest in this world. Higher than that is Ava Rabba, a tremendous love, realizing who Hashem is. But higher than the higher love is the higher fear. And this is what the Altarab is talking about right now. And it's not just fear of, it's not just accepting Hashem's kingship, which is tremendous and 
great enough. But this is beyond that. This is awe of Hash, consisting of shame before Hashem's greatness. The person has a deep awareness of Hashem. At that point, what they realize is that nothing exists besides Him. And the way they feel is like nothing. It's feeling a deep sense of insignificance. And when I say that, I hesitate because it can come across the wrong way. But we have to remember, let's, let's just take our ego out of the picture for a minute. And looking at this idea that really, there's nothing else besides Hashem. And all of creation is a manifestation of His kingship. But He's beyond all of that. And if a person truly realizes his essence, they realize that nothing has true existence. And it's called Yire Baishas. It's a fear consisting of shame. They say of Rav Nachman of Breslov that when he was a child, he already had this fear of shame. This, he, if he felt like he thought something that Hashem wasn't pleased with, or he felt like he did something that wasn't according to Hashem's will, he would blush as a little child because he had awe of Hashem's transcendent majesty. And it's, it's way beyond his creation. It's about the essence of Hashem himself. It's awe of who Hashem is. At that point, when somebody is in awe of realizing that nothing is of any significance before Hashem, they as if lose their identity. And the example that I read is, of being in the presence of a tremendous holy person. At that point, like, you just feel, how could you compare to them? And uh, the truth is, I wasn't even going to repeat this example in class because you can't. I don't think there's a way to truly compare the way somebody feels like when they're just in awe of Hashem, how He transcends all of creation, that there's nothing else besides Him, this is a whole different level of fear. This is fear as it transcends all of creation. And the Altar Rebbe says that this is from the hidden matters belonging to Hashem, our God. In Parshas at 7, the Torah says, Moshe is telling the Jewish people, The hidden matters belong to Hashem, and the revealed matters belong to us and to our children. And Kabbalah teaches us that Vihaniglis and the hidden matters is a contraction of the word Vav He Niglis. The letters Vav and He are revealed. But there's two letters higher than that. Those are Yud and He, and those are hidden matters belonging to Hashem our God. This level of fear comes from those hidden matters. And just like it comes from such a high level of recognition of the divine, and it's hidden, it also is hidden within the person. A person who experiences that level of awe, it's not something that you can see on them externally. It's something that almost renders them motionless. They're like dumbstruck. It's of those hidden matters. So this, this level of fear is not one of the haze. The altar explains its source, v'hi b'chachma ila'a. It is on the level of supernal wisdom, alluded to by the Yud of the four-letter divine name, blessed be he, as it is written in Raya Mahemna. So this 
kind of fear, which is even beyond the love, is rooted in the letter Yud, which is Chachma, and it's a recognition and awareness of Hashem's transcendent majesty. So we just finished this note, and let's summarize this note. And this note is really to bring us to the awareness that love and fear are wings. But the author didn't just tell it to us in a sentence. He's bringing us sources. And he's bringing us depictions from the Zohar that illustrate this idea. So after saying that those who serve Hashem with love and fear are called children by the Zohar, which means that they have wings and they can fly. And those who serve Hashem without love and fear are called fledglings, which means that their wings are underdeveloped and they cannot fly. The altar but now expands this idea by having us look at Tikkun 45 for the Tukude Zohar. And he says to us that the bird is Matat, the archangel Matatra. And the Tikkun says that his head is the Yod of Hashem's name, his body is the Vav of Hashem's name, and his wings are the two Hays of Hashem's name. Now, in order to understand the four aspects of this angel, we have to know what his character is. So what do we know of his character? That the world of Yetzirah is called Matatra. And if we look at the world of Yetzirah, we can understand the angel. What is the world of Yetzirah? The world of Yetzirah is classified by divine emotion. That means the bulk of the world is emotion. By understanding the body of the world of Yetzirah, we can understand the body of the angel Matatron, which makes us understand the letter Vav. What is the letter Vav? The letter Vav are the Midot. That is the body of the angel. That corresponds to the laws of the Mishnah, which the final verdict is connected to emotions. So its body are the laws. Its head is the reason for the laws, how we got there. That's the Yud. And it's two wings, the things that raise the final law, which means the things that raise the halachot, which means the things that raise the mitzvot. Because if the body is the laws, the body are the mitzvot. What raises the mitzvot? When we're looking at the figure of the bird matatrum, it's its two wings. What are these two wings? The altar explains the two wings are love. The higher hay, the first hay of Hashem's name is the love. The lower hay, the second, the second hay of Hashem's name is lower level fear, which is simply accepting the yoke of heaven. These are the two wings of the bird, the angel Metatron. What raises the final verdict? What raises the laws of the Mishnah? What raises the mitzvah? It's the two wings of the bird, love and fear. This is a depiction of the fact that love and fear serve to raise Torah and mitzvot to a level beyond where they are presently. So serve to elevate the Torah and mitzvot. Now, the, the fear that we're talking about as far as functioning as a wing is the lower level fear because there is a higher level of fear than that. What is the higher level of fear? This is fear 
It's, it's like a shame. It's an awe of Hashem's transcendent majesty. It's something that's hidden. It's not that which is external and revealed. It's something that reaches far deeper into the person and extends far higher as far as awareness of the divine. That is sourced in Chachma, which is the Yud, and it's also the head of the bird. So having finished this note, we're going to conclude class, but it's going to lead us into understanding the fact that love and fear are called wings. That on one hand, they raise the Torah and mitzvot. On the other hand, they are not essential to the body of the bird. And again, it's bringing it all together that the most essential component of the Torah study or the mitzvah performance is the actual deed. If a person has meditation, if a person has sublime feelings, but they didn't do the deed, nothing was done. On the other hand, if they said the words, if they did the deed, and they even had contrary intentions, an act of holiness has been created. The divine will has been pulled down into this world. The divine will has affected a refinement of the body, the animal soul, the world. It could be trapped, but Teshuvah will fix all of that. And the essential nature of Torah and mitzvahs has not been tampered with. It is unhampered. It is pristine and pure. It is always pristine and pure, no matter what the intentions. That is the body of the bird. That is the essential component of the bird. But then there's something else. There's love and fear. Those are very important. They're not essential to the bird. And if you have them without the bird, you have nothing. But once they are appended to the bird, then they allow the bird to fly, which means they allow the Torah and mitzvahs to be manifested so we can see that they are divine. It allows us to see what the true nature of Torah and mitzvot are. And that's what we're going to visit next class, when I think we're going to finish the chapter. So closing class for today and opening up for questions and discussion. Yeah, I have a question because here it says uh, the yoke of the heavenly kingdom and the dread. So the lower level fear, the dread of God, similar to the dread of a king. So first you said it was accepting the yoke, which seems much more neutral from accepting the yoke. But then it says the dread of a king. So it it feels very negative to me, you know, like the the punishment that's going to happen. Right. So, so that's why I brought up the punishment thing, because it's when, when we say the dread of the king, think about like, think about somebody really important to you that you would never want to disappoint them. It's not because you're afraid they're going to do something to you. You just don't want to let them down. Like any healthy relationship has an element of fear. We hate the word fear. We hate the word dread. We can, we can, we can change the word for respect instead. But if you're going to look deeper and see what respect is, it's a certain level of fear. I am afraid to let that person down. I don't want to do it. I'm afraid. But we can't say afraid because in today's world, you can't be afraid. <laughs> and the truth is, we really shouldn't be afraid of anything else besides Hashem. But of Hashem, we should be afraid. And it's not afraid of punishment. It's afraid of letting him down. It's afraid of rebelling against him. 
I'm trying to wrap my, this is like really amazing that I'm trying to wrap my head probably just from my background of what halacha is in this very strict halacha, 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 you know, and, and, and now to put it in the context with matat, that this body is the emotion, not what's going on in the seichel, not all the reasoning, not everything else, but, but the emotion. And, and I'm, I mean, I understand, I followed your whole, whole argument and I followed the whole way, but I still seem to be stuck in this view where I see halacha a lot of times as being just this set in the sand, this line, and you either do it, you know, you do it whether you believe it or not believe it, whether you understand it or don't understand it, you do it. So it's like, when you say that that it's that it takes the emotion to do it, sometimes we don't grow up that way. That we're actually, you know. Okay, so so I'm listening to your question, and I'm loving your question because it's it's very involved and it's taking everything that we were studying in class home. And there's two parts really to your question, because. There is, how do we come to the halacha? And then how do we follow the halacha? The, the rabbis who, you know, render the halacha based on the argument and then coming to the final decision of majority or whatever, the way that they were inclined to one way or the other was first they had to have all the reasoning. They couldn't just say, my emotions tell me that this is where I go. No, you have to have all the, the legal arguments in front of you and then, based on the root of your soul, you're going to lean towards one decision or another. Once the halacha has been decided, it's not an emotional thing for us. Then it's actually the lower level hay of accepting the yoke of heaven. Like it or not, feel it or not, you do it. Because that is Kabbalah's al-Malcha Shemayim. So it's not like, oh, like this is what the halacha feels like to me today. It's like... Now that I have clarity and I know what the halacha is, and maybe today I'm not in the mood, I'm doing it because I, that's what Hashem said. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That helps. 